Thank you, Joel. It's a wonderful way to conclude your prayer. We do want to see more of God and less of ourselves. And this morning, Lord willing, we will do that. This morning, you will meet two people. Two people exactly like yourself. Two people from a different world. These people enjoyed perfect lives. They had perfect peace. And then, then they didn't. And this morning you will also meet one person who undid it all. Who with one question triggered the descent of all that we now know as pain and suffering in a fallen world. But above all this morning, you will meet one who rescues. You will meet one with unending, redeeming love. If you have your Bibles with you, open up to Genesis chapter 1. And my aim this summer is to take a break from Matthew. We've been working our way through Matthew, verse by verse. And this summer, we'll go back to the beginning to explore the the first book of the Bible and to set before you the major figures of Genesis. Now, to be clear, these people are not an end in themselves. I present them to you to show you the person of God. Our Lord reveals himself in, in profound ways at the beginning of history. And you and I, we need a study like this because God has become small. For some, God has become a therapist. For others, God has become a Santa Claus. For still others, God is some kind of shut-in, visited in this house only on this day. You and I need to return to a meaty doctrine of God, who God is and what he does. A God, yes, who heals our sprained ankles and fixes our flat tires. Those things are good, but those things are small. We need to visit anew the fullness of God and the God of the Bible at that. We need to awaken to this God, who he is, and yet who we are. To quote Carl Truman, we must instill in ourselves a glorious and beautiful doctrine of God. One that so grips our imagination that it carries us out of ourselves to the very portals of heaven. I cannot make you do that, but I can open the door. And that's what I intend to do these next few weeks as we work our way through these major figures of Genesis. I will point to them for sure, but I want to point past them to the person and work of God. Well, this morning we begin with God's love in the life of Adam. Well, we hold three sightings of God's redeeming love in this account. And we begin at the beginning. God's love creates. God forms Adam. Just think, if if all of creation is an expression of God's love, then the human being is his masterpiece. God creates with awesome ability. In Psalm 33, verse 9, the Bible says that God spoke and it was done. 
Genesis chapter 1 is going to record five consistent days of this. God's going to create all things, and he'll do so out of nothing. You and I, we need seeds or or lumber or paper or, or whatever it might be. God needs nothing, simply a word. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, the psalmist then says. If you're following along in your Bibles, you'll see that each day follows a pattern. Look at day number one, for example, chapter one, verse three. Then God said. That launches us then into the day. There's a command, the command's fulfilled. The accomplishment, it's declared, verse three, and there was light. And every day gives us a time stamp as well. Verse 5, there was morning, excuse me, there was evening and there was morning one day. And that, by the way, is one 24-hour period. There's no gaps. There's no evolution. Some see the word day referring to thousands of years. One goal then is to, to, to include some kind of evolutionary development in that day. Well, I'll tell you, the Christian faith was not waiting around 1,800 years for Charles Darwin to come along and straighten it out. Moses came way before him, and his commentary is way better. Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day, that is one week. More to our point this morning, day number six, it's going to follow the same pattern, but something special happens here. If you notice in verse 24, God begins this day creating land animals. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. Cattle can refer to any kind of animal as the words used in the Old Testament. They're often domesticated animals, creeping things. You can use your imagination. That word refers specifically to their movement. There's reptiles and snakes and crocodiles there. And beasts of the earth, that word is often used of wild beasts. But then in verse 26, there's a second emphasis on day six. Then God said, The creation of man is the climax of his creation. How do we know this? Well, it's the final component in all the creation. This is the final aspect of God's creation. He puts man at the top of the animal kingdom. In verse 27, look at how that verse labors to show us that God created. Three times the word created appears. And we see here that that man, and only man, is created in the image of God. Man being a general word for for men and women. This passage is the longest stretch of text in terms of, of creative content. And it reveals that everything has been created for men. It begins at verse 26, it goes through 31, then all of chapter 2 elaborates on it. So when you behold the beauty of creation, it could be the the majestic beauty of our Pacific Northwest. It could be the the oceans and the beach. Maybe you're one of those people who's adopted a beast of the earth into your house. I want you to see that God created all of these 
beautiful things, but most of all, he created you. And he did this. Verse 7, chapter 2, he does this with precise care. God puts so much care into the creation of mankind. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. God formed us. That word elsewhere is used of a potter sitting at the wheel with Jeremiah and Isaiah use the word that way. God formed us not out of out of clay or even mud. He formed us out of dust. I mean, this verse just, it slows us down. The speed at which God is creating through chapter one, it it slows down here. Look at how intimate he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. One commentator says it this way, breathed is warmly personal. With the face-to-face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was giving as well as making and self-giving at that. What a great summary. Here this lifeless corpse came alive. The heart begins to beat. Lungs inhaling and exhaling. Hands flex and eyes open. God created man with precise care. And the rest of chapter 2 reminds us that, that this creative love of God, it involved wise planning. God had incredible foresight. You know, to, to the sermon last week in Jonathan's text, God just never dumps us somewhere. He's intimately involved in our lives. Romans 8, verse 28, we were reminded of this, that God is working all things together for good for the believer. God's created with an infinite foresight. We see in this chapter, he's he's prepared a garden. And he he planted a perfect garden on a perfect planet. It's almost impossible to imagine when you consider the state of our world. All of human history has been played out in a very different place than this. It's all been played out in a broken world. We've always had a broken climate and a broken ecosystem and a broken food chain. But in the beginning, in the beginning, it was paradise. It's almost unimaginable. In verse 8, he plants a garden of Eden in the land of Eden. Notice in verse 9, there's there's a focus on the trees. They look amazing. They produce delicious food. And we see that there's two trees in particular. It's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the former sustains the life of the garden, but the latter can lead to what we call moral autonomy. And this means, and we will see this as the account unfolds, that you and I were not created to determine what is best for us. God alone does that, or should. In fact, we need not look far in our culture to see what happens when that way of thinking is rejected. The account continues. There's now a focus on pristine waters. There's four rivers named. The names of those place this garden somewhere in the Middle East. 
And then verses 11 through 12 focus on precious stones. These are are metals and jewels that filled that region. God prepared the, the perfect place for the pinnacle of his creation. And in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And here God is assigning duties to the man. Work is not bad. That statement might hit you a little funny. But it's true. Work is not bad. In fact, we can even ask the question and and order it. Which came first, sin or work? Work. Work preceded sin. And Adam's work here was to cultivate and to keep. The word for cultivate in some of your Bibles is translated as work. Interestingly, this word, as the next few books of the Bible unfold, it's used of the work of the priest in the temple. We're in the tabernacle. We might say that our work is to worship God. The word for keep has a lot to do with protecting or with guarding. And if you know how this account ends, everything goes south by the end of chapter 3. There, something called the cherubim guards the garden. Same word. And as we're working our way through this account, we now see the first command given by God. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. God has said to Adam, Adam, you can eat from any other tree. You can eat from every other tree, but not this one. We've learned already in our account that man is different. He's different from the rest of the created order. Man alone is created in the image of God. Man has the ability to cross moral lines. And here in our account, God is gracious to him, to warn him to present consequences if that line is crossed. God says, essentially, do these things, but don't do that. Well, finally, in this first point, God knew that man would need something else. He had the foresight to see that man ought not to be alone. In fact, God says it that way. Chapter 2, verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And in his infinite wisdom, God knew that that man needed relationship. That isolation for the human creature, it's not good. We're created for fellowship, and and man needs a helper. That's not a negative term. It's not pejorative. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, that word is used to refer to God himself. And Adam and Eve, they, they would work together. Eve supplementing Adam. And what he lacked, she fulfilled. And in verse 24, they would unite as one flesh. God made marriage the building blocks of society. Because God alone can see the future, he alone creates all things in light of it. And in love, God also created you. It's an important point this morning. That you were no accident. Psalm 139, we love this psalm. It declares that God formed your inward parts. God wove you together in your mother's womb. The same God that created you formed 
Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed in his nostrils. You were fearfully and wonderfully made, that psalm says. God loves every masterpiece of his creation. But here's the thing about that truth. A lot of people don't know that. You and I live in a a post-Christian society where the God of the Scriptures is hardly talked about, let alone the love that he has for people who never hear of him. You and I know that he loves his creation. We know that he loves us. We know that he loves those that don't yet know him. And people need to hear about this. That may be all that it takes to get to the gospel with many people, just to tell them that God loves them. And then you can share Christ. So God loves you, you are his creation, and he doesn't make mistakes. Look next at Genesis 3. Here we learn that God has a holy love. If we just saw that God's love is a creative love, we now learn of a holy love. Genesis 3, as you might know, records what we know as the fall. Adam will eat of the forbidden fruit and everything changes. Now, a few weeks ago, we covered those first five verses in Sunday school. We did a a deep dive. We're studying the doctrine of Satan. Uh, We learned what happened in these first few verses. In summary, the serpent comes along and he he tempts Eve. And in verse 6, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. One bite changed everything. One bite introduced every affliction we know. Every suffering, every conflict, every crime, every disease, every disaster, every death, every fear, every phobia, every mental illness, every war, every accident, every atrocity, every abuse, one bite from one fruit from one tree. Sin is serious. I want you to think about this for a moment, men. One lustful look at a woman. One visit to a pornographic site on your smartphone. One sin like that separates you from God for eternity. It damns you to hell. Sin is that serious. Ladies, think about one white lie. One small act of deception. One lie just to make you look a little bit better. That one act is huge. Because God is that holy. One lie damns you to hell for eternity. And we can even flip this around because we know that that men lie and that women lust. And if we're honest, that's not even our 1%. God is holy. And we don't grasp how holy God is. I don't grasp how holy God is. And we don't know ourselves and how much he repudiates sin. And we also don't realize how perfectly he keeps his promises. To bless, yes, we love that. But to curse, 
Absolutely. A few years back, Ligonier Ministries hosted a conference. And at a Q&A, someone asked R.C. Sproul a question about God's response to Adam's sin. Seems like a very normal question. It's a question me might ask. Since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? And R.C. Sproul asked his own question back. He asked, what's wrong with you people? This creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God. And God said that the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. Instead of dying that day, he lived another day and was clothed in the righteousness by pure grace. And he would go on to say that we don't know who God is and we don't know who we are. And I think he's right. I think some of us this morning are here and we're underinformed. We're even disinterested. We're so distant from God during the week that we can't possibly know who he is. I think some of us this morning aren't saved. I think we think we are. I think we heard a gospel message and we know a little bit about repentance and belief, but we don't follow Jesus. But I want you to know this about God as well. Because if this morning you don't know God, you can know God. Adam and Eve sinned and they hid. The relationship was broken but God's love rescues. God's love redeems. He comes along in this account and he asks a series of questions. And I think the first one is big. It's a, it's a question for some of us this morning. He comes along and he says, where are you? Adam never hid from God before. Adam never had to hide from God. And by the way, it's not as though God doesn't know the answer to this question. That's not why he asked. He asked for the sake of Adam. Think about that calling of Isaiah over in chapter 6 of Isaiah. What does God ask him? He says, Isaiah, whom shall I send? God's not scratching his head, really waiting for Isaiah to fill him in. Isaiah replies, here I am, send me. He asks for the sake of Isaiah, and he asks for the sake of Adam. And this morning, maybe he asks for the sake of you. Maybe this question lingers with you this morning. God coming along to you who he loves. And he asks, where are you? Where have you been? Stop sinning. Stop running. Return to my love and my forgiveness. That's the kind of love that God has for you. A father with open arms it's his invitation to you this morning. You know, you need to know that God loves you. And never forget that, that he created you with a love that you cannot comprehend. And that love stands to today. But Genesis 3 is going to go further than this. Again, we're talking about a love that's not some generic, uh, generic love, but it's, it's a very specific love. It, it's a holy love. And we see that he keeps his promises here. If we obey his commands, we know that we will be blessed. But if we break them, there's consequences. That's what happens next. Three participants in this eating of the fruit 
receive three sets of consequences. In verse 14, first, to the serpent. On one level, we have an address given to the animal. This animal would travel upon his belly. In humiliation, he'd be sliding along in the dust. There's some division among commentators whether the serpent actually had legs to begin with when he was created, and he then lost those. But on another level, God speaks to Satan. And we know that Satan was behind the temptation. Later, way later in Revelation 12, he's called the serpent of old. We understand that he's behind this. He's involved in this in some way. God then goes on in verse 16 to address Eve, to the woman. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Here in the highest of fulfillments, there's going to be pain. And notice the last part of that verse. There's different interpretations for that. They all evolve around that word desire. Some believe it refers to a a corruption of intimacy between man and woman. Others believe it refers to a disruption of roles as they now move forward and reign over creation. But in this series of judgments, Adam receives the final word. Verse 17 to Adam. To Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. He's expelled from the garden, and now to live and sustain, there'd be pain for Adam. In the end, ultimately, he would die. Did God love Adam? Did God love Eve? Did God stop loving Adam and Eve? No. No, God loves people. And many in our culture would heartily agree with that statement. But there's more to it. Because we need to remember that God also loves his word. And God keeps his word. And when he promises consequences for sin, he delivers. You see, God's love is a love that is grounded in truth. It's a subjective love. It's not open to change. God doesn't take a survey and see what popular opinion is and adjust his love to that temperature. In Genesis 3, look, God's not ignoring sin. God's not looking the other way in Genesis 3. He doesn't affirm Adam. Well, Adam, if you really feel that way about the fruit, then I guess it's all right. No, that's not God. God never fails to love Adam, but it's a meaningful love. It's a truth-based love. God's love is holy. It's a creative love. And lastly, it's a redeeming love. God loves you with a love that rescues. And we need to stay in Genesis 3 for just one more moment. We need to go back to verse 15. He's speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. 
He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. God's love grants redemption. And what we have in verse 15 is, is a prediction of an ongoing conflict. We, we read that, we see that there. It's a conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It's a conflict between uh, satanic forces and then humankind. At some point, the serpent inflicts an injury to the heel. But then notice what happens. A seed will come, a, quote, he will strike the head of the serpent. And many see this as Jesus conquering Satan. Almost a a gospel message tucked in to this prophetic judgment. And the timing of this, it's remarkable for a number of reasons. Think about what just happened. In the midst of judgment, God now gives grace. Now, this passage contains a promise. Again, we saw it. It's the the first good news. Though Adam and Eve sinned, they did so egregiously, God's going to redeem. And let's look around at the context a bit. You can spot the other acts of God's grace here. Down in verse 21. God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. That's the first sacrifice to cover people. Do you you sense the atonement? Do you see how the atonement of Jesus fits into that? And then consider the curses that you and I just discussed a moment ago. In verse 16, Eve's going to bear children. In verse 19, Adam's going to work. How in the world do they remain? Why does God not immediately strike them down? Why, in the fury of his holy wrath, does he not damn them to hell? Why does he not give them what they deserved? They disobeyed and they rebelled. What a gracious God. And God is a gracious God who loves Adam and Eve. And God is a gracious God who loves you. He's a God who knows all about your sin. And he seeks to cover it. To redeem you and rescue you. His son, Jesus Christ, crushed the head of the serpent. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, the Bible declares, Christ has been raised from the dead. Jesus died for your sins and he rose again. Why did he do this? The next verse. For since by a man came death, that's Adam. By a man also came the resurrection of the dead, that's Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. When Adam ate that fruit, death became part of our world. And there's a time coming when you and I will return to the dust. But there's more. You and I are spiritual beings. We're not merely physical beings. And we're spiritually dead, says the Bible. The sinful nature of Adam and Eve, it has been passed down from generation to generation. Every person has this. We might call it the worst genetic disease possible. Every soul is spiritually dead. And when you and I are born, it's as though we ourselves have bitten into that fruit. By a man came death, says the word, and by a man comes resurrection. Jesus died for you. And he died for the sinful deeds of your soul. And if you repent and turn from your sin, and if you believe upon him, you are promised resurrection. 
You were promised not hell, but heaven. You were promised not death, but life. God is a God who loves you. And he's a God who redeems you. As we wind down, I want you to see one more example in the life of Adam. This idea of a redeeming love. And it's over in chapter 4, verse 25. God gives new life. God gives new life. In Genesis 4, the effects of the fall, they're going to spread immediately. There's a godless culture that springs up in this world. The very first child born grows up and murders his brother. Cain kills Abel. And in verse 16, Cain departs the presence of the Lord. That's a significant statement. What happens then in the following verses is the Scripture's way of communicating to us a depravity spreading across the land. The line of Cain will produce polygamy. It will produce murder. Cities will be built, implements, instruments, they'll all be constructed, but it's all about self-indulgence. It's men looking to themselves and, and not to God. And then in verse 25, here's our shining star in Genesis 4. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. What a strong contrast there to the line of Cain. And think about Eve for a moment, what it must have been like to be in in her shoes. Her, Her firstborn killed her only other child. Abel, that means, would not continue the family line. And at this point in history, by the way, that means all of the human species. And Cain, by his murder, has disqualified himself. But God, in his grace, in his redeeming love, comes along, and he gives them a boy named Seth. Seth fathers Enosh, verse 26. He was a godly man. Notice the end of that verse. It's a little bit unusual. It's probably worded that way to to contrast the line of Seth and Enosh against the line of Cain. In other words, Cain is seeking worldly pursuits, Enosh heavenly pursuits. What else can we say of Adam this morning? Chapter 5, verse 4. And the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. That means that Adam lived long enough to see the world change, to witness the descent of the world into sin and depravity. No doubt, to live his entire life thinking back to that decision that he made that day in the garden. I wonder if he couldn't transport himself back to the garden, to those times before the fruit, before the fall. As bad as things got, he would still witness God's grace. We saw that God gave him Seth. He gave him a new son. He gave him Enosh. At that time, men began to call upon the name of the Lord, and then along comes a man named Enoch, a man who walked with God. 
a little over 100 years after the death of Adam, another righteous man was born, maybe a little crazy, maybe quite faithful. He's a man we'll see next time, a man who goes by the name of Noah. But Noah is not what we're up to this morning either, is it? Because we seek this morning to behold the person of God in the lives of his people. And today we learn that God creates. That God is a, a loving creator and he's created you out of great love. And God's love is holy. And that God's love redeems. And let me emphasize that as we close this morning, believer. And God's love for you remains. If God has redeemed you, God loves you, never forget that. Who will separate you from the love of Christ? Will tribulation... Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Will distress, hard times, or no absence of the love of God? Will persecution, Jesus died on a cross? Will famine, serious needs will never cancel God's love for us? How about nakedness? Jesus understands shame. How about peril? The danger doesn't scare off God. How about the sword? Does God's love not mean that we immediately enter his presence? No, you can be convinced this morning, believer, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will separate you from the love of Christ through God, our Father. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your redeeming love for us. I pray for us that we would understand the depth of it, that we would understand you better. I thank you for the grace you've given the human race, since the fall in the garden, even to today. Thank you for Jesus Christ and his redeeming love as well. I pray for your blessing upon us as we depart from here this morning, that we would walk as those who know the Lord, who are loved by the Lord. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.